You can stand if you want. It's okay. I want to tell you what to do. Now, will you, uh, Will, will you do me a favor um, and put up the uh, the lyrics that one that one screen that said, I, um, "I have a plan for you." I have a plan for you. It's going to be wild. It's going to be great. It's going to be full of me. Um, tonight, honestly, I think this is going to be hard to believe um, with what I'm about to say. And I pray that God would give you the courage um, to trust it. Uh, the lyrics in the song go on, um, say, come away with me. It's not too late. And I, I hope and I pray that the Spirit of God um, would stir up that invitation in your heart. Um, tonight, I want us to take a look at one of the most famous stories in all of history. Uh, it's the story of the Great Flood. There are over 500 accounts of a great ancient flood in history. Um, and this particular one we're looking at, um, some of you know it, maybe most of you know it. It's one of the most famous stories of all time. Uh, we're talking about an ark and a guy named Noah and rainbows and doves. But I wonder if we really know what it's about. And this whole semester, as we're looking at uh, famous sort of Bible stories that we might have heard as kids um, that we might find uh, in a book called Children's Bible Stories or something like that. We wanted to ask the question, have we, have we heard what God might have intended us to hear in these stories or have we missed it? When the flood, first of all, happened, but when the flood story was recounted to the Israelites, it wasn't to a bunch of children, it was to grown men and women, making sense of who this God who had led them out of slavery is. And this story, Jesus says, previews his coming in glory in Matthew 24 and Luke 17. Peter says this uh, flood story corresponds with baptism, if you're familiar with baptism. This is a story about judgment and grace and mercy. But I think often we simply think it's a story about animals and rainbows and a really big boat. Um, honestly, I'm terrified right now. Uh, this story is really hard for me, and it's one that um, I remember being uh, 19 and, and hoping and praying. I actually sent an email to a mentor of mine, I didn't think about this till today, who actually um, sent me a text today that I'm going to be talking about in a little bit, um, but I remember being 19 years old, sending him a text about the flood story and saying, in all of the things I know about the Bible, this I can't get over, I can't get through, um, and I remember thinking at that point, I hope nobody ever asks me what I think about the flood story ever, and now I have to preach about it. So I, I'm really scared. Um, and, and I think what I'm sharing tonight is something that most of us in this room try not to think about very much. Um, so I would like for you to pray with me. Um, and then I want um, you to give me the, the privilege, the honor, the uh, holy ground of trying to be as honest with you as I possibly can. So let's pray together. Father, um, you know all of the things that are about to come out of my mouth. Father, I ask that you keep me from saying anything that isn't true. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. I pray that your spirit would cover this room, O oh God, who made everything and judges everything and saves everything and loves all of us. You are wild. You are so much more than we could possibly control and God, that scares me to death. And yet, Lord, 
of course, of course, that's what we need if we are to be saved from the wrecks that we're in. I pray that you would give people in this room courage tonight. I pray that you give them humility. I pray that you would open minds and hearts um, to think with more clarity than, than perhaps we've ever thought before. I pray that you, I pray that your son is lifted up tonight and magnified um, and that we would long, all of us in this room, that we would long to be found in Christ and to be known by Christ and to be loved by Christ. And it is in his incomparable name that I pray. Amen. Uh, let me read to you uh, this story. Um, it's from Genesis chapter 6 through 9. It actually goes a little bit before that in the end of 5, and it goes a little bit longer into the middle of chapter 9. It's a lot of scripture. Um, I don't have a felt board up tonight, but I'm actually going to read to you from a children's Bible that I think does a pretty good job of getting it. Um, I'm hoping that's a little uh, uh, quicker uh, to read and a little more entertaining, and it gets some of the big points across. So, uh, Will, if you want to throw up the first slide, um, I, you don't have to read the text. I'm going to read the text. Um, as soon as I pull up my Kindle app. Um, and uh, let's read the story of the great flood from the Bible. A new beginning, Noah's Ark from Genesis 6 through 9. Time passed, and many people filled the earth. Everyone everywhere had forgotten about God and were only doing bad things all the time. God's heart was filled with pain, and when he saw what had happened to the world he loved, when he saw what happened to the world he loved, everywhere, was disease and death and destruction, all the things God hates most. Now, Noah was God's friend, which was odd in those days because no one else was. Noah listened to God, he talked to God, he just loved being with God, like you do with your best friend. Noah, God said, things have gone wrong. People have filled my world with hate instead of love. They're destroying themselves and each other and my world. I must stop them. First, we'll build an ark. Do you know how to build an ark? Neither did Noah. Luckily, God knew and he would show him. Let's go to the next slide. A storm is coming, God told Noah, but I will rescue you, I promise. I'll send the animals to you, ones that creep and crawl and slither and slime and gallop and hop and bound and climb, and don't forget to pack everyone's food. The storm was gonna wash away all the hate and sadness and everything that had gone wrong and make the world clean again. God had thought up a way to keep Noah safe. But Noah would have to trust God and do exactly what God told him, so Noah built an ark, which is short for a very large boat. Noah's neighbors came out to watch and point and laugh because they didn't believe Noah about the boat or the storm or needing to be rescued. And Noah must have looked rather silly. His boat was in the desert, and the desert was nowhere near the sea, and there wasn't even a cloud in the sky. Why would anyone need an umbrella, let alone a boat? Next slide. But Noah didn't mind so much what other people thought. He minded what God thought. So he just did what God told him to do. And when the ark was ready, God said, all aboard. And Noah's families and all the animals climbed inside. Then God shut the door. Next slide. And it started raining for minutes that joined up into hours, that joined up into days, that joined up into weeks and weeks, and the rain joined up into puddles, that joined up into rivers, that joined up into lakes, that joined up into a flood that covered the whole world. Their boat had once seemed so big, suddenly seemed very small. But in the middle of the huge storm and the crashing waves and all the thunder and lightning through it all, God was with them. And God kept them safe for 40 long days and 40 long nights. 
Finally, the rain stopped and the sun came out and Noah threw open the windows. Hooray! Everyone shouted. (laughs) Noah sent his dove out to explore and it wasn't long before she brought him back a fresh olive leaf and everyone knew exactly what that meant. She had found a tree and land. The water was going down. Last slide. At last, the boat landed quite suddenly on top of a great mountain. As soon as it was safe, God said, out you come. And so they did. Everyone skipping and dancing onto dry land. The first thing Noah did was to thank God for rescuing them, just as he had promised. And the first thing God did was make another promise. I won't ever destroy the world again. And like a warrior who puts away his bow and arrow at the end of a great battle, God said, see, I've hung my bow in the clouds. And there in the clouds, just where the storm meets the sun, was a beautiful bow made of light. It was a new beginning in God's world. It wasn't long before everything went wrong again. But God wasn't surprised. He knew this would happen. That's why before the beginning of time, he had another plan, a better plan. A plan not to destroy the world, but to rescue it. A plan to one day send his own son, the rescuer. God's strong anger against hate and sadness and death would come down once more but not on his people or his world. No, God's war bow was not pointing down at his people. It was pointing up into the heart of heaven. This is the story of the great flood. That's a children's story. I think it gets um, a lot of things right. I think there's some problems with it as well, but, um, but the gist of the story is there. If you want to read it in uh, your translation of the Bible, it's Genesis 6 through 9 mostly. Um, and I think there's a lot of questions that come up for me in this story. How did all the animals fit into the boat? Did Noah build this thing all by himself? Did he think the olive olive branch symbolized peace? Like that story said, or are we reading back into that? I remember remember this story so vividly because there's no story in the Bible that gives me more fits than this. My my freshman and sophomore year of college, I decided as I was making a decision to follow Jesus um, that I wanted to start reading the Bible from beginning to end to see if really I could agree with what God had said in the Bible and if I could really trust it. And after fighting uh, through the first five chapters and doing a lot of um, linguistic and theological and scientific gymnastics, um, I got to chapter six and I threw my hands up and said, I can't, I can't do this. I'm only six chapters in and I can't do this anymore. Um, I actually moved right from there to Romans and decided not to read the Old Testament and start with something as far from that as I could uh, because I couldn't do it anymore. And um, I have a lot of questions about this text. I have had a lot of questions about this text. And and if you guys can indulge me for a minute, I'd actually like, um, this might be really overwhelming for some of you. Um, For some of you, you're going to be like, thank God somebody's saying this. But I'd like to just share with you some of the questions that I've had as I've I've looked at the story. Um, I don't anticipate talking about many of them tonight, but these are actual questions that I have asked or am asking still um, about this story. So if you'd put um, the first of many slides up. Did every single species come to the boat or just one of every kind of species? There's huge debates about this. Is this symbol, I'm really serious. Is this symbolic for all the creation mankind was responsible for? That is, is like, is all the animals coming just like a saying, well, look, there's other animals, but like, we're just trying to say man and animals. I don't know. How did the animals all fit into 100,000 square feet of deck space? The, the math is about 95, 96,000 square feet. Um, did God make the earth bring forth animals like in Genesis 1? Or did all of the repopulating happen from the animals on the boat? If the latter, did everything evolve in the next 6,000 years to where it is today? Did rainbows exist before the flood? If not, are we actually claiming that it didn't rain or that water didn't refract light before then? 
Which one? There's problems in both cases. Let's go to the next slide. Um, what did Noah do with all the waste from the animals if the boat was sealed? What's the deal with all the specific dimensions for the boat? Is this so we can trust that God's a good shipbuilder or because it mimics the dimensions of a body, like a coffin, which it does, which is very interesting, I think, um, or simply because he is really high maintenance? Was the flood local or global? If it's global, like, was the water really almost 30,000 feet above sea level that we know today? Because the Bible says it's uh, about 20 feet over the highest mountain, and Everest is like 29,000 feet. So, I'm like, is that like the, the earth is like a big marble of water from space? Like, is that what it looks like? Or, or if it's local, which seems more likely from a scientific point of view, why all this language about global stuff in the Bible? What am I supposed to do with this thing? Next. Did people really live around 900 years old? All of this is in Genesis 6 through 9. Okay. Um, did the Israelites count years like we do? Are we supposed to believe that Noah was celibate for 500 years? That's maybe the most ridiculous one. Uh, what... <laughs> Anyway, next. Um, what about the 500? Uh, hey, no, I'm serious. I love that y'all are like, no, no. Anyway, um, what about the other 500 flood stories throughout the world? There's tons of, literally about 500 ancient flood stories. Three massive ones, two of which are wildly popular for comparing with the, uh, the biblical account, the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, known as Atrahasis, and the Enuma Elish. Um, do they bolster the Bible account or do they challenge it? What about the Nephilim and the sons of God sleeping with the daughters of men? What the heck is that about? And if the Nephilim are some special race of like giants or something, why do they show up later? Goliath is one of them. When there's only eight people that are supposed to be in the boat. How'd that happen? Next slide. Why did God take a full year to destroy the earth? It wasn't just 40 days and 40 nights. It was a full year from the time Noah got on the boat to the time he got off the boat. Why did it take that long? Why not just three days? Why not instantly? Why did God have to carry this out over a full year? What does it mean, oh goodness, what does it mean that God regrets making mankind? Is that what I think it means? All of these and more. I spent a lot of time wrestling with these questions. I would read about everything I could. I mean, not every day, but off and on for a couple of years, I'd wrestle and wrestle and wrestle because I felt like I, if I'm going to trust that the Bible is true, I can't pick and choose, and what do I do with this flood story? I'm sharing these questions with you really for two reasons. One, first of all, which is redundant, first of all, forget the one, um, if you have questions like this, I want you to know that you have a lot of company. One of the things I've discovered um, it, with the questions that I've asked is there, I have yet to find a single question that I have ever asked it doesn't have almost 1,500 years of volumes of study and dialogue and processing. I have not come up with a question yet that hasn't been asked before. There's a part of my pride that sort of goes like, I need to come up with one. But really, I find a tremendous amount of peace in asking a question, going to Google, going to journals, going to commentaries, books, the Bible, libraries, whatever, and going, oh, it's not like one obscure person's dealt with this before. There's thousands of years of dialogue about, or at least quite a few centuries of dialogue about any of these topics. In other words, if you have questions like I do about texts like this, you aren't outside the church. Welcome to the party. Like we are a group of people journeying together, asking questions like this, wrestling with these things. You are not asked, I am not asked to fully wrap my mind around all of these questions and have a perfect answer for all of these things in order for me to be considered a Christian or to be found in Christ. 
love asking these kinds of questions. I really do. I hate that I have, I have some of those questions that I asked. I actually have found a number of pretty satisfying answers to. Um, there's a number of them I haven't, I, I know people who think that they have satisfying answers to those questions. I just don't find them very satisfying. And maybe that's my limitations or whatever. But what I'm sharing this with you for is, is in one hand to let you know that please don't let questions like those keep you from moving closer to Jesus. I would let those be a mystery that draws you in. But two, and much more importantly, I want you to see all of those questions dodge the biggest one. Well, we are, some of us anyway, the skeptics in the room, we're fascinated with the ancient Near Eastern biblical accounts and the ancient Near Eastern accounts of floods and how they compare. And we're fascinated by square footage and how really, the, like, did, like, did kangaroos, like, how'd they get there from Australia? Like, what, like how did that happen? Um, if that's even necessary, is that really a necessary argument? And, and how do we interpret the Bible? Like, some of us love those kinds of questions. And it's fascinating to explore them. But I think potentially the biggest one in here is um, why did God destroy everyone and everything? Cute that we want to know about square footage on the ark. Why did God kill everything except for eight people and a bunch of animals? Put up that first picture for me, that, uh, the next one. I think this is probably close to what most of us think about when we think about the ark. Fair to say? Like typically there's fish jumping in the background and there's birds flying through the clouds and everybody's pretty pumped and excited. It's not the picture I have in my head. Would you put up the next one? That's the picture I have in my head. You can leave that up for a minute. I think we can busy ourselves with all the logistical and quirky theological questions that can come from these texts. But first, let's just consider why in the world did God destroy everything? I've read flood stories from six different children's Bibles. It's really fun. I was assuming that they were skipping this. Because all of us have an image of that first picture. I think most of us do, right? Like most of us have this sort of, uh, like I'm gonna get my kid a little ark to play with in the bath. And like he's gonna play with little giraffes, like two by two, you know? I don't think I'm gonna give him thousands of giraffes and tell him to kill all of them but two. Like I don't, I don't do that. Like we give him two things to play with, you know? Like I don't give him like um, uh, millions of people and say pick eight. Like I don't do that. Like we have that first picture. But this is the picture that sits in my head. And so I'm like maybe these children's stories like, maybe they just aren't saying this kind of stuff, and that's where we get that picture. But that's not true. Every single children's story I read, every one, says something really direct about God destroying everything. And I, it's not because we haven't heard it. It's because we don't want to pay attention to it. We don't want to think about it. We don't know what to do with it. We'd rather think about rainbows and doves than the somewhere between hundreds of millions and tens of billions of people that, according to the Bible, died in the great flood. Why did God do this? The most significant genocide in all of history. God. God has a plan for you, right? So that'd be hard to believe tonight. Why did God do this? Is it because people didn't believe in him? I mean, as Christians, you might hear that language a lot, or you might hear that from Christians a lot. We need to believe in Jesus or something. Is that why? Like, because people just didn't believe in God, and he really wanted people to believe in him? Is it because he was annoyed? 
Interestingly, uh, the, the, the most popular and um, significant ancient Near Eastern flood stories that aren't the Bible, that's the main message, that the, the, the gods were just annoyed with the clamor that humans made. Or we needed them to do work so we could rest, but they're so annoying, and so they, they kill all humans. Is that why the God of the Bible did that? Is, he, is, is it sort of jiving with the other stories? Is it because we didn't take care of the planet very well? Maybe we didn't recycle? Is it because God was tired of what he did and just wanted to do something new? He's God, he can do what he wants. Would you put up Genesis 6, 5? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's not because there was a lack of faith. It's because of the presence of evil and wickedness. And it wasn't just some evil and wickedness. It was, I mean, look at the strength of this. It was that every intention was only evil continually. You can leave that up, but it goes on to say uh, a couple verses later that the earth was corrupt and that it was filled with violence. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Why did God destroy everyone? The Bible would have us believe, I think God would have us believe because wickedness was that great. I think it's hard for some of us to believe that things were that bad, but this wasn't just God's word or God's correct uh, judgment uh, over that time, however. The only words, um, and if you could put up, I don't know if you put up the next one, Genesis 5, 28 to 29. Do you have that? Great. Um, the actual only words that we have from any person alive during that time in the Bible is from Noah's father, Lamech. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. It's the only commentary we have of people living during that time. So God looks at the world and says it's wicked, and man living in that world, having kids, says, please, someone save us from this terrible life in which we're living hundreds and hundreds of years. Things were terrible and wicked, and God, in his justice, judges evil and wickedness. God is a God of justice. I think the story of the flood is on one level. I think there's another one. But this is huge, and this is a very real part of what the story of the flood is about. The story of the flood is about the justice of God. And I think we need to know this. What if... Some of you are going to struggle with questions like this probably, but what if God just, and I want you to try to think, what if God didn't judge? What if he never judged? What if no evil was ever judged? What if wickedness could run wild and God just left, left it alone? What if wrongs were never righted? What if injustice never had an answer? And all the justice that we could ever get is what we could work with our hands before we died. And that was it. That's, oh, that's what life meant. That was the end of the story. Especially if we believe that God is able to bring justice. And if that God just decided to instead 
wash his hands and say, you know what? Y'all do your own thing. The story is about humans, us, knowing that God is a God who will deal with evil, that wrongs will be made right. That's not enough. If you're like me, this answer falls a little flat because everybody died. Not everybody, there's eight. And we wouldn't be here if everybody died. According to the Bible, we wouldn't be here if everybody died. If God really wanted to destroy all of humankind, then we wouldn't even have a story to read. There would be no writing of a story. It would be done. We wouldn't even know the story existed. Part of what God is doing is letting us know that he's a God of justice, but we still, it doesn't sit right with us, I don't think. I could be presuming too much upon you that millions or billions of people died and you're cool with that. I'm not. That makes me really uncomfortable. Great, God is a God of justice, but can anybody survive that justice? We want some answer that makes us feel okay about this, but in this story, I don't think there's really one to be had. It's not okay. It's not enough. God doesn't pretend that it is. And I don't think he asks us to pretend either. Let me put it this way, because this is really simple. This is Genesis 8, and there's 65 more books of the Bible. This is not the end of the story. This isn't an isolated incident where we go, what is God doing with mankind? Interesting, 6 through 9, he judges people and they die. I'm not comfortable with that. God doesn't ask us to be. There's a reason the story continues. And, and so I will say very strongly, on one hand, I think this is a story about us wrestling with the fact that God has declared himself to be a just God and will judge evil. He does this in the New and the Old Testament. But there's more. A friend of mine texted me today, when I, the one I mentioned earlier, um, when I was sharing with him how heavy all this was on my heart, and he encouraged me to remember something, he said this. He said, judgment is rooted in hope. Judgment is always rooted in hope. I seriously got the text and I just started weeping. Of course it is. Of course judgment is rooted in hope. If, if there's no hope, we get apathetic, not indignant. Y'all probably know this. When you don't have any hope for something, you don't fight anymore. You don't have any hope, you give up. You let it go, you get lazy, you forget, you get apathetic. We get indignant, we feel like injustices are being done, our passions are roused. We want justice, we want judgment because, only because, we think there's something better on the other side of it. That's the only reason judgment ever makes sense. Like here, the reason God is judging sin is for what comes after that judgment and what we can find through the midst of that judgment. Every act of judgment and justice of God is rooted in hope. Right after Noah gets off the boat, he makes a sacrifice to God and we put the next verse up and God says this, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. You can leave that there for a second. So the first words from God after the flood are a promise to never do this again, which is really interesting. Because on one hand, he has judged evil, and so our, our, maybe our desire and, and God's um, uh, 
in part of his character being a just God, our desire for him to be just and for evil to be vanquished and conquered and responded to appropriately, well, that's been satisfied. But Noah gets off the boat and, and the intention of man's heart is still evil. If you're reading this story and you think about this verse for a second, that's saying this is just gonna happen again. The story began with God saying uh, back in chapter six that the intentions of man's heart were only evil, continually evil all the time. And here after the flood even, God judges, brings Noah safely through the flood. Noah sacrifices, rainbows come out in the clouds. He's apparently happy according to children's stories. I think it's probably terrified because there's nobody left but just us. I mean, that's a crazy story. And in the midst of it, God says, Man's intentions are evil from his youth. So in one sense, the justice that we need for sin has been resolved, but we aren't safe yet. Our sin still has to be dealt with. In other words, judgment is not enough. It's not enough. The problem will still need to be addressed. He flooded the world to judge evil and to reveal to mankind that judgment alone will not bring about abundant life. Let me say that again. God flooded the world to show us that he will judge evil, and to judge evil, but also to reveal to us that that's not enough. God has no desire to just judge and let that be the end of it. This means that we shouldn't content ourselves with the flood story alone. As if God ended his work there. He's telling us there's more. So under this promise that he made to Noah, that he would never again flood the earth, never, there's no more worry about that. You don't have to fear that. And he made this not just with Noah, but with all of creation. He made it with animals and even the planet, whatever that means. It's another question I could put on that list. God restates the commands. Think about this. He restates the commands that he gave to Adam and Eve in the beginning of Genesis. God says to Noah, be fruitful and multiply. He said that to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply. Now knowing that I will never do what I just did again in that same way. So go be fruitful and multiply. It's a new beginning. And God will make new beginnings over and over and over again in the life of Israel and in the life of every single person who finds himself in Jesus. His, his mercies, as one Israelite put it, are new every single morning. So God demonstrating that he is just and will judge evil, also tells us that he has something more in mind than simply justice. Just a couple of pages later, God moves from Noah to repopulating the entire earth and then zooming in on one man living in this clan of moon worshipers in a city called Ur, a town called Ur. This man's name is Abram, and he says that through Abram, he will bless the entire world, and from Abram, he creates the Israelites, and out of the Israelites, Jesus is born. And once more, Jesus would say, he will judge the world. This time by fire. Jesus, Jesus would say, he will judge the world. Jesus who judged it the first time. This time by fire. The ark, this time is him. And rather than room for eight people and animals, he invites the whole world. 
David would call him our refuge and strength. Paul would say we're hidden in him. And Jesus, who can do abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine, won't just deliver us safely when the earth is made new once more. He can actually make new the intentions of our hearts and our minds. He can help us to live life abundantly with no more sin, no more sorrow, no more death. God says uh, through the prophet Ezekiel that if, if someone like Noah uh, could be righteous and, and come through and be our leader, Noah could just save himself. He couldn't save all of us. And Noah, from the flood story, Noah still died. Matter of fact, moments after uh, God makes this new covenant, the first thing we find out about Noah is that he got drunk. And the next thing we find out about him is that his son did something really improper with him. And so he starts cursing one son and blessing another. And it just looks like problems all over again. Jesus is a better Noah. This is what the flood story is pointing to. This is what we're to consider when we think of Noah's ark and the flood, not simply animals or how animals can fit into a boat or why rainbows are in the sky, but the God who will repay evil with justice, the God who will right all wrongs, the God who knows that justice isn't enough, who tells us that mercy and grace triumph over justice. But God forbid that we don't think he isn't also just. The flood story is about grace and mercy in the midst of judgment. It's about God redeeming his people and bringing them to a fuller life. And all of this, and this is wild, he intended from the very moments of creation. Jesus who made all things, by whom, for whom, through whom, all things were made, is the judge of all things. He is both the great flood and the great ark. He's the just and the justifier. And we can be safe in him. It's not too late. I think that's what the flood story is about. Let's pray. Uh, Father, um, I don't know how you go about helping us to trust you. But it's really hard to think about you judging if we don't already. Lord, do what you need to do. I pray that every single person in this room, again, would have the courage to let you have your way. I pray that your spirit would help us see our need for something more than a cursed ground and a life of toil. I pray that right now you would not let anybody in this room settle for something less than abundant life. I pray that no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death would be desires that they have that they could not shake. Pray that you help each of us, every single one of us. Be thankful for the fact that you judge evil so that we can relax about it. And I pray that you help us understand that you, you have always known and we doubt all the time that you poured the wrath out on your own son 
so that we don't have to bear the burden of it. And that your demands for justice are satisfied in Christ. I don't know how any of us can believe that apart from your spirit doing work though. So help us. Help us to believe. Help our unbelief. Lord, I pray that you would always free us to wrestle honestly with your scriptures and to fear you more than anything else. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.